Welcome to the Political Therapy Podcast. I thought it would be fun to have a conversation with you about where I'm coming from with this political therapy project and where I'd like to go with it in the future. So what is the spirit of political therapy? One way of expressing it would be to say that it's about persuading and not winning. That our politics so often is about trying to win out, right? It's a battle between groups. There isn't this sense that you're trying to convince the other group to go along with you or that you're trying to win people from the other side to your side or that they're trying to share ideas. You're trying to learn from what they have to say. Rather, it's like two sports teams. It's a zero-sum competition where one side is going to win and the other side is going to lose. And everything that you do is about mobilizing your base, advocating for your particular arguments, maneuvering for marginal advantages in the political sphere, more candidates elected, more justices on the Supreme Court. I think that this attitude of gamesmanship in politics, of it's all about winning, it's not about seeing ourselves as a community and a nation, as a group of people who need to come together and make positive things happen for us as a country, but rather as these warring factions that are trying to destroy one another. That this is tearing us apart as a country. It's making our politics worse and worse every year. It made it possible for us to have a president like Donald Trump, who I am not a fan of. I think that what I could call this spirit of political therapy is maybe civic virtue. Civic virtue is the kind of thing that I think that you ought to be learning in, in civics class. I don't know that most people really have a civics class anymore, or that there is a clear sense, if you took a civics class, that there is a set of virtues that you should abide by as a citizen if you want to make your country strong, if you want our democracy to thrive and flourish, if you want us to be able to work together to achieve the big goals that matter to us, that I think matter to all of us. I think one of the elements of this winning-based approach to politics is a belief that the other side doesn't want good things for the country, right? If you're on the left, you think that people on the right are racist and sexist and that they would like to see significant swaths of the population live in a status of oppression. And if you're on the right, I think that you believe, well, one, that the people on the left kind of want to destroy you, that the people on the left have a negative attitude toward the country, that they aren't proud of the country and its institutions and its foundations and its principles. And in that sense, that by tearing down the foundations of our country, the people on the right think that the people on the left want to bring about a dystopian state. If the United States is one of the greatest, richest, most powerful, freest countries on earth, then being opposed to American history in the American way, being ashamed of what the country has stood for in the past, to conservatives, sounds like you want to undo those things, that we would not be so prosperous, not be so free, not be so great. But I think that most Americans are neither racists nor communists. Most Americans do want the future of America to have certain similarities to the past of America. That most Americans want America to be free and prosperous. Most Americans want America to be a land of opportunity and equality. 
Uh, so we shouldn't see each other as enemies. We, if you fall into this way of thinking that your opponents want a dystopian America, something terrible, I think you need to re-examine your assumptions. I think that you're probably wrong. And by pursuing politics on the basis of this assumption, this assumption that you in all likelihood have formed only by reading partisan media, right, that you don't know the details of what these other people think, except through the words of their enemies, right? If you are a Democrat and you think that the Republicans are crazy and evil, is it because you got that from reading their own words about themselves? Or is it because you read articles by people who despise the Republicans and have represented them in a negative light, and vice versa. The Republicans do the same thing to the Democrats, each of us in our bubbles demonizing the others on the outside. And that's one of the civic virtues. A civic virtue is to have positive assumptions about your fellow citizens, an eagerness to understand them, an eagerness to persuade them, uh, to be open-minded, to be universalist and pluralist, to say that the good things that you want, you want for everyone, and that it's okay for people to have a somewhat different opinion than you have. It's probably important to say that if you are on the Democrat side, you might think, well, I've seen Donald Trump and he is crazy and he has strange ideas about what the world should be. He is a Republican. I, I don't think that he is a reasonable representative for Republicans, in spite of the fact that he is a Republican president who was voted for, apparently, by many Republicans. Um, certainly the Republican Party had no desire for him to be their candidate. I think the intellectual right... You know, the people who write in journals and National Review and write books, they all loathed and feared him. And his philosophy is nothing like the historical conservative philosophy, right? He's not someone who is all about uh, respect for duty and in institutions. Uh, he's not about respect for the police and the military the left has thoroughly documented his disregard for those groups. And from the before he was president, when he was campaigning, he showed that disrespect. And as soon as he was elected, he repeatedly showed that disrespect. Uh, so the left has been eager to tie Donald Trump more closely to the Republican Party to say this is what the Republicans have really stood for all along. But Re Donald Trump doesn't stand for anybody but Donald Trump. He is a pretty unique individual. But I want to talk for a minute about incivility, right? If, if the mission of political therapy is really to sell civility, to sell civic virtue as a virtue, one of the things that I want to say is that Incivility, I think, is it caused Donald Trump to be the president. I think incivility caused issues to become political footballs. Incivility prevents us from making real progress, right? That I'm saying that civic virtue is about persuading, not winning. But I think that persuading is really the only actual way to win. In our daily lives, we, we see this. 
where we would be, we would clearly know that someone was doing the wrong thing. If in their workplace or their friendship or their marriage, they behaved the way that we all behave in politics, you would think that they were out of their mind. In our day-to-day -day lives, we know that we're dealing with real people, right? We know if we want a raise from our boss, we have to convince them that we're a really good employee and that if they treat us well, it's going to be to their benefit, right? We know if we want some particular outcome with our spouse or our children, we need to persuade them, right? We don't just fight for the win. You would be crazy to do so. I'm not saying that there aren't such people in the world. I suspect that Donald Trump is probably like that in all of his relationships all the time. But the rest of us, most normal functioning people, don't fight for the win all the time. We just do it in politics. We behave very differently in the political arena than we do in our own lives. And I think that's because it's a thing that takes place outside of the real world, right? It's something that takes place, we go to the ballot box once in a while, but for the most part, it takes place on the internet. It takes place on TV. It's a form of entertainment that our behavior, which we would never think was okay as humans dealing face to face with one another, feels okay in this highly mediated, imaginary kind of environment. So we give in to incivility in this environment. We read articles that we know in advance are going to stoke our anger and rage, right? If you were having a conversation with a person, if you felt yourself getting angry, you would try to calm down. You might exit the conversation to cool your head. You wouldn't deliberately pursue directions in the conversation that you know will make you angry and will make the other person angry. At least, again, you ought not to if you want to continue to have a working relationship with that person. And the people who we are competing with in our politics, we have to continue working with them just as much as you have to continue working with your coworkers, or you have to continue working to get along with your family members. If we're not prepared to do that work, if we're going to follow this course of civic disvirtue, as opposed to civic virtue, we have to understand the tribal nature of people. We are accustomed to seeing this world where people don't physically fight one another, where they don't kill each other, where they don't beat each other. That's the normal world for most of us. But it's not the normal world for human history. It's very normal for humans to be physically violent with one another. It's very normal for humans to establish hierarchies in which some people are far lower, are treated far worse than other people. And when we attack one another's dignity, which is one of the themes that I've tried to elaborate in the writing so far in political therapy, dignity is this thing that we afford to things that we love, right? That your cat can have dignity in your eyes or your house, right? There could be things where if something bad happened to them, you would be very sad. Uh, and when you deprive others of dignity, you take away that sense, right? When you think about your political opponents, generally you think that it wouldn't upset you if bad things happened to them. Right. Recently in the news, Donald Trump got COVID-19 and 
a lot of people on the left didn't even bother to conceal their joy, right? And I'm sure that Donald Trump wouldn't be magnanimous if, say, he did not have COVID and Biden did have COVID. I am not confident that Donald Trump would not say something terrible. I don't know what he would say, but I could picture him saying something terrible and everyone would get upset reasonably. But we can't hold Donald Trump as the standard of civil ethical behavior, right? That has been one of the great problems of the left's response to Donald Trump. The whole nation's response to Donald Trump is I continuously have conversations with people where I say, I think we're behaving badly. And they always point at Donald Trump and they're like, look at how badly he's behaving. And if Donald Trump is our standard, right, that is the standard of civility. Behave no worse than Donald Trump. I don't think that any nation could possibly function under those conditions. I know that he is our president, but he cannot be the standard for our behavior. And it is our declining standard of behavior over time that has allowed him to become the president, that there would be no President Trump if we had not allowed ourselves to fall this far. So no holds barred political struggle is a formula for losing. It's a formula for our destruction. Persuading is the only way to win. Civility is the only way that we can win as a country. And I don't mean triumph, America triumphing over the world. I mean America serving as a community in which all of us can realize our hopes and dreams for the future of ourselves and our families and our friends and our fellow citizens. If you actually care about those things, then my call is for you to behave in a way that manifests this civic virtue that I'm talking about. But on this topic of Donald Trump and how he became president, I want to pivot to a somewhat different discussion. I want to talk about the call-out culture from the left. There's a very interesting book called Kill All Normies, in which the author Angela Nagel describes culture wars on the internet between the left and the right. It's hardly even groups that you could think of as the classical left and right. But one side are these people who call out others on the internet for violating the strictures of a very particular morality that they hold. I'll just read a paragraph, which I think describes our present environment reasonably well. The once obscure call-out culture of the left emanating from Tumblr-style campus-based identity politics reached its peak during this period in which everything from eating noodles to reading Shakespeare was declared problematic, and even the most mundane acts, misogynist and white supremacist. While taboo and anti-moral ideologies festered in the dark corners of the anonymous internet, the de-anonymized social media platforms where most young people now develop their political ideas for the first time became a panopticon in which the many lived in fear of observation from the eagle eye of an offended organizer of public shamings. At the height of its power, the dreaded call-out, no matter how minor the transgression or how well-intentioned the transgressor, could ruin your reputation, your job, or your life. The particular incarnations of the online left and right that exist today are undoubtedly a product of this strange period of ultra-Puritanism. These obscure online political beginnings became formative for a whole generation and impacted mainstream sensibilities and even language. In that paragraph, she suggests that this was the peak of this identity politics. 
which seems to be incorrect. It, it seems to be getting stronger over time. But she's right. It has spread out into the rest of the world. And if you dig into the history of the alt-right and the online culture wars, which I think played a much bigger role in making Trump a possibility than most people realize, and I think that you can read this Kill All Normies book by Angela Nagel to get some sense of what that is like. It's a very interesting rabbit hole to go down to see what the, the online culture is like. But I really like the description there of it as a panopticon, right? Where people live in fear of being called out, and so they stop talking. And I think that describes a lot of our present environment. And I think it describes something important about the movement of the people who supported Donald Trump. That sane politicians also fear the panopticon, right? That if you're a regular person, by which I mean not someone who is this fearless narcissist that Donald Trump is, being called out, being called a racist, being called a sexist, being called misogynist is terrifying. But many of the things that happen with this call-out culture offend the sensibilities of many ordinary people. They just can't say so. And because they can't say so, there is no countervailing force. There is no counterweight that keeps our culture towards something resembling the median opinion of the median person. So people live in a culture where the cultural norm, what people express in public, deviates a great deal from the way that they feel inside their own heads. For instance, one of the examples of this cancel culture, call-out culture, one of the first ones that I was personally conscious of was Brendan Eich, who was then the CEO of the Mozilla Corporation, who created the Firefox browser. He was one of the founders of Mozilla, and he had given $1,000 in the early 2000s in support of Ballot Initiative 8, which proposed a constitutional amendment to the state of California making gay marriage illegal. Ten years later, someone dug up information and found this $1,000 donation by the CEO of Mozilla on behalf of Ballot Initiative 8 and began a public campaign to have him removed from his job. There were large protests, social media shaming. Many employees argued that they didn't feel welcome in a company that was led by someone who would have contributed to that initiative. And I know that today... Gay marriage is overwhelmingly popular. A sizable majority of all Americans are in favor of gay marriage. But in the early 2000s, that wasn't the case. Ballot initiative number eight passed. An amendment was made to the Constitution of the state of California, a famously blue state that made gay marriage illegal. Ultimately, that amendment was struck down by a federal court. But the important point is that Brendan was holding a majority position, that he did ultimately get forced out at Mozilla for 10 years earlier, having held an opinion that the majority of Californians held at that time. And I'm sure that some people on the left would find this perfectly appropriate, right? That this sounds like a win. Here's somebody who holds an opinion that diminishes the dignity of gay people, that prevents them from living their lives as they wish. And we've shown the world that that's not an appropriate opinion to have. That if you hold an opinion like that, 
you can't be the CEO of a major company. But I think that there are downstream consequences of that kind of message, of saying, here's something that the majority of the people believe, but we're going to punish anyone who publicly acknowledges that belief. A more recent example is J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling has argued publicly that it should be legal in the United Kingdom for there to be spaces reserved for biological women. Right? They, in particular, she's interested in women's shelters. She has argued that there are women who have been abused by men who would be uncomfortable sharing a space with anyone who was born a man, even if they were a transsexual. And modern trans activists have declared this a transphobic opinion and continuously harass her in every venue that she participates in. But this also, today, is an opinion that the majority of people would agree with, that it should be okay for there to be spaces dedicated to the use by biological women. Maybe that is oppressive to trans people. That isn't anything that I care to take any particular stand on. I can see how trans women would feel excluded, and I can see how there would be women who would want a safe space that was for biological women only. It's not clear to me what the correct resolution should be. But the point is that this panopticon of cancel culture that everybody lives in fear of, such that they can't express their opinions, means that somebody like J.K. Rowling is alone in the wilderness. Few wish to stand up to defend her because they do not want to come under the same scrutiny and pressure that she is under. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the opinions have changed. And that's how we come back to the story of Donald Trump getting elected. That there are many far-left opinions that have become a sort of public orthodoxy. That no leader of any organization no leader of any institution, no politician, feels like they can safely criticize, even if they're on the right. And that Donald Trump, by being like no other politician, by being either too brazen or too blinkered to understand that there are things that you are not allowed to say, was able to express criticisms of views that many people disagree with, but can't say so. And the other Republican candidates in the field were not prepared to criticize those positions. This is not to say that all of these people agree with everything that Donald Trump has said, but that there were enough people who felt strongly enough about enough issues that Donald Trump, speaking in an uncensored fashion about those issues, was able to win a plurality of votes in the Republican primaries and ultimately secure the candidacy and become president. So I would argue that a major factor in Donald Trump's ascent to the presidency was the censoriousness that the left exercises around certain issues. So we've created a condition where no mainstream candidate can address themselves to the median voter, and that leaves the door wide open for opportunists like Donald Trump who are unafraid of the censors. And I do think that there is still an imbalance in our politics an imbalance which has really only grown, where more and more people are feeling like they can't speak their minds in public, and more people ought to be afraid that perhaps they are becoming the next Brendan Eich. That's one of the things that worried me so much about the Brendan Eich affair, was that it was retroactive, and that the opinion that he had held was a majority opinion at the time. Right? If attitudes shift 
in the future, things that are very reasonable beliefs today, or which people perceive as reasonable today, will become off-limits, and you'll be retroactively cancelled, as so many historical figures are now being retroactively cancelled, as Brendan Eich was retroactively cancelled. And these arguments, Brendan Eich, J.K. Rowling, gay marriage, trans spaces, women's spaces, these issues are mostly opinion-based, but this call-out culture and cancel culture has extended to the leadership of our institutions, to professors having their research censored, having their positions taken away for holding views that don't align with a very far-left orthodoxy on topics like police violence or the origins of disparities between Black Americans and other Americans or the effectiveness of affirmative action in bringing about greater equality for black people. And those are not just opinion-based issues. If we censor debate, discussion, and even research on those topics, if we cancel historians for interpreting history in ways that we don't like, if we cancel scientists for collecting data on topics that reveal things about the world that we prefer not to see, these are all things that are actually happening now. We prevent ourselves from being able to fix those problems, that the people who are being censorious about issues around the races and the sexes think that they're progressive. They think that they're enacting a program that will reduce inequities. But I think that those inequities are going to be better addressed with data and clear thinking and debate and discussion. And they're shutting those things down. And one of the other things that the left is doing, not most of the left, but this far left, this extreme left, the ones who are forbidding certain kinds of conversations, other things that they push are intensification of group identity, sensitization to harms by outgroup members, anger at existing disparities, all of these things are, are divisive. They increase the salience of group identities. They foster anger and resentment. They teach people to treat people different from them with contempt. So we've made these, these groups more salient as identities, but we, at the same time, are removing the conditions that would be necessary to reduce the inequities between these groups, right? So these advocates for social justice are creating the conditions that will make greater equality impossible, while simultaneously making people angrier about those inequalities. And that's something that scares me a lot. I'm worried that we're locking in the inequities because we're no longer able to talk about the issues around them. We're no longer able to investigate the causes. We're no longer able to propose policies that anyone finds offensive. Political correctness is not a science. Political correctness is not a way of seeing history that shows us something true. So I'm afraid we're going down a path where inequality will increase and anger about that inequality will increase. And our response to increasing anger about inequality will be greater censorship, greater political correctness, more orthodoxy within institutions, all of which will further impede progress. And this seems like a formula for a political explosion to sensitize people to a problem while endorsing policies that make that problem worse and making it impossible to discuss any other policies. And I understand, I will have to argue more in the future, that it's true that the policies that are being advanced 
will make things worse, or that there are viable alternatives that are being excluded from the discussion. But I'll just say now that I think that those things are true, that it feels like this is a formula for social conflict. And I don't just mean arguments. I mean that the violence that we've seen this summer in American cities is only a taste, that those people are going to keep getting angrier and angrier, and the underlying disparities that they point at will get wider and wider. I need to start winding down this conversation. So I'll finish by saying that this conversation is meant to foreshadow the writing that I want to do in the coming weeks on political therapy. I want to talk about this movement towards social justice. I want to contrast the civility that I'm calling for with the characteristic elements of this movement, which some have come to call wokeness. I want to draw boundaries around the elements of social justice that we should all be prepared to fight for, and the elements of wokeness that aren't truly aligned with social justice, right? I know that the people who we call woke are deeply concerned about equality and the well-being of the groups who they believe they're advocating for. And I just think that there are elements of their ideology, their philosophy, their strategy, their tactics, which are counterproductive. And I hope while minimizing the offense that I give to anybody in particular, that I can highlight the differences between uncivil social justice and civil social justice, which, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, is the difference between effective social justice and ineffective social justice, that I'm claiming civility is how we can all win, and incivility is how we can create a civil war, how we can get more Donald Trumps, more summers of conflict and cities on fire. I don't think any of us want to go there, so I hope that you'll read these things that I write in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening to the Political Therapy Podcast. Thank you.